So this is the last of three in my little mini-series on what God may be saying to us in these times. And I want to look this morning at what it means to have hope, which is not something that I've talked about very often, once in seven years, I think. But it's funny how at times like this there are some things that seem to be more important or more relevant than they usually are. In 1 Corinthians 13, which is that famous passage about love that I think has probably been on the order of service at just about every wedding I've ever been to, right at the end, in the very last verse, it says this, And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. In other words, as another translation puts it, in this life we have three great lasting qualities, three things to focus our hearts and our minds on, three things that should be hallmarks of who Christians are and what Christians do, faith, hope and love. Now we talk a lot about love as indeed we should do and what it means to be people who do love because love is a doing word, not a feeling word. And we talk a fair bit about faith as well, because faith is also a doing word, as we said the other week. But we hardly ever talk about hope and what that looks like as a doing word. So what does hope mean? What does it mean to be people of hope? alongside being people of love and people of faith, if all three of them are important for us to be. So let's start with what hope doesn't mean, or at least what it doesn't mean in a biblical sense, the way that the Bible uses that word, what it would have meant in the minds of the biblical writers. Now the way that we usually hear people using the word hope today is in the sense of hope for the best. If you're a golfer facing an impossible shot from the rough and you can't see the green, you might say, all I can do is hit and hope. One dictionary says it's like crossing your fingers, hope this works, touch wood and even look on the bright side, which I suppose for those of us of a certain age will forever be associated with Monty Python. And these ways of using the word hope all start from an assumption that things almost certainly aren't going to work out the way that you want, that it's pretty unlikely. They're all basically negative. Let's hope that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and that it isn't a train coming the other way. So what does biblical hope mean? Because biblical hope is very different. And I'm using the phrase biblical hope because I'm not saying that people are wrong to be using that word in these other ways. It's just that when the Bible talks about it, it means something very different. Now you may have come across something called the sign theory of language, which is all about how we use words. We use a word to point the person we're talking to or writing to towards something and the word that we use is not of course the thing itself it's just a signpost pointing towards that thing 
So for example, if we're on the M25 and we see the word Aylesbury, the sign isn't saying this is Aylesbury. Aylesbury is not a tarmacked area in the two right-hand lanes near Heathrow. It's just pointing you towards Aylesbury. When we use a word in communicating with each other, the idea is that both the writer and the reader have the same shared understanding of what that word is pointing to. So if I say dog or cat or electric guitar or glass of red wine, an image comes into your head which is, broadly speaking, the same as the one that I'm thinking. So you and I have successfully communicated. We both know what we're talking about. And that works fine until what that word used to be pointing people to changes. And the image that comes into their head changes as language evolves, which, of course, it does all the time. So a a classic example, an obvious example from recently, would be the word gay, which used to mean light-hearted and carefree. But now we use it primarily to mean someone who is same-sex attracted. So words have no inherent meaning in themselves that is fixed for all time. They are signposts to things. The word is not the reality. It's what it's pointing to beyond the word that is the reality. And that, of course, is why as Christians we need to keep rethinking our vocabulary and our imagery in communicating the gospel to make sure that the words that we're using and the illustrations that we're using are still reflecting that reality well, that they are signposting it well to what the biblical authors had in mind and, of course, what God himself had in mind as the divine author. So coming back to hope, it's not that people today are wrong to be using the word in those kind of ways. It's just that what the word is pointing to when they do use it is not the same thing that the biblical writers were pointing to when they used it. So if we read in today's kind of meaning to Bible verses, if we're not careful, it will be pointing us towards something that the Bible isn't saying and we'll be taking the wrong meaning out of it. I hope that makes sense. Give me a a nod at home if it does or put a yes, Steve, comment on Facebook Live. Okay, so to keep the Monty Python analogies going, now for something completely different. What biblical hope means. What the word hope is pointing to in the Bible. What it's signposting us to. And the single best word that we could use instead would be expectation. Confident expectation, enthusiastic expectation. To hope and to have hope is to be excitedly expectant. One more sleep to go until Christmas type expectation. So that is what we need to be reading in when we read the Bible and we see the word hope. If we want to have the same shared understanding as the people who wrote the Bible of what that word is pointing us to. Here's a sense of that from Luke's Gospel, talking about the atmosphere in Israel at the time of John the Baptist. 
Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. The NIV says the people were waiting expectantly, which of course is very different to saying everyone was hoping the Messiah would come soon in the modern sense. Very different to having an excited expectancy rooted in God. And that leads us on rather well to the first thing that biblical hope is all about, which is this. Hope is in God. Our expectation, our expectancy is in God. First and foremost, before we ever have hope in God's promises or in God's answers to prayer, our hope is in him, in who he is and in what he's like. Our hope and our expectancy is rooted in God's character. For example, in the Psalms, I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And then that same verse in the Amplified Bible, which doesn't always get it quite right when it tries to amplify the meaning of a text, but in this case, gets it spot on. And now, Lord, for what do I expectantly wait? My hope, my confident expectation is in you. You know, Christians sometimes go wrong by focusing too much on the promises and not enough on the one who gave the promises. We don't have a relationship with a set of promises. We have a relationship with the promise maker behind those promises, whose promises that come to us in the Bible are reflections and examples of who he is and what he's like, and the kinds of promise that God makes and God keeps. And as we said the other week, if those promises are timeless, because they are promises that we see repeated throughout the Bible to many people in many stories and many verses, then there is no need for us to have to claim them for our situations because they're already timelessly true. So we just receive them and enjoy them because they're timelessly true of God. Biblical hope also includes a sense of deep longing. In Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Biblical hope also includes patience and perseverance. It means being willing to wait and to trust him while we're waiting. It means hanging in there and not giving up and keeping on. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul points to Abraham as the great example of someone who did that, who had that kind of hope, that kind of confident expectation, despite the way that things looked. God had promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky but they were both way past childbearing age. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. 
And Paul puts it pretty bluntly when he says, Abraham's body was as good as dead. I can imagine how Abraham might want to have a few words with Paul about that choice of words when they meet up in heaven. But Romans 4.18 says that against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Against all expectation, he believed expectantly with patience and perseverance. But you know, we're not particularly good at that, are we, these days? And personally, I blame instant coffee for that. It all went downhill from there. Here's a completely gratuitous photo of a tin of instant coffee. We could have managed without showing that, obviously. But it's true that now we kind of expect to have instant everything. It's a bit like that Brian May song by Queen. I want it all and I want it now. But for us as Christians, part of the meaning of being people of hope is that we're patient and not demanding of God and that we continue to trust him and to love him and to believe in him when he asks us to persevere, to do what Abraham did. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Against all expectation, Abraham believed expectantly even though he had a couple of wobbles along the way, as we sometimes do as well. So biblical hope has all of these elements to it. If biblical hope was a firework in the sky, these would be the things that would be exploding from it. Expectancy, confidence, trust, perseverance, patience, waiting, and background to expectancy again. If we have biblical hope, these are the things that will be exploding from our lives too. Or if I can mix my metaphors, that's the kind of fruit that will be seen in our lives. If we've really grasped what biblical hope is and let it loose in our hearts and minds. And we could just as soon put the word God in the centre here and it would be saying the same thing. Because God is our hope, and our hope is in God. You know, it's very interesting that so much of the Bible and so many of the stories that we read and the situations that people were in when those stories happened were in times of trouble and suffering with fear and anxiety in the background. Probably much more than we ever realise when we're reading it. And that's one of the reasons why we need to take an interest not just in what the Bible says, but also in the context of where and when and why it was saying it. Because whatever something may be saying to us today, it was first saying something to the people who were there at the time. So reading the Bible well includes taking an interest in what it meant then not just in what it might mean for me now. And in fact, what it might mean for me now will be all the richer if I know, firstly, what it meant to them, then as well. And maybe one of the reasons why so many of the Bible stories are against a background of trouble and suffering and fear and anxiety is because when times are good and life is easy, 
people think far less about God. At the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by the Roman legions. The people of God were being ruled by pagans. And everyone was asking, why is this happening to us? Why doesn't God send the Messiah to rescue us? And different groups had their own answer to that. The Pharisees said it was because the ordinary people weren't following the law that God had given them. If only the people lived more righteously, then Messiah would come, which is why they were so focused on that and picking people up on that. The Pharisees were the ones who cared about slipping standards in society, who were really focused on righteousness and holiness as they defined it. But the problem was that some of them loved the law too much and didn't love the people enough. They'd put the cart before the horse in God's priorities. Most of the ordinary people at the time were living below the poverty line and they simply couldn't manage all of the things that the Pharisees were expecting of them. They were just trying to survive. If the only work that was available from a pagan employer was on the Sabbath, then they had to take it or risk their family starving. If they had no money to buy sacrifices or pay the temple tax, they couldn't do that. So the Pharisees weren't all bad. Their hearts were in the right place in one sense. But they were missing something really important in the heart of God. His love and his compassion towards struggling and hurting people. A God who understood what the ordinary people were going through. And this is what Jesus was getting at when he said, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And for Sabbath, you could read the whole of the law. And that was the main reason why Jesus argued with the Pharisees. And maybe there's a lesson in that for us as well as evangelical Christians today. Just going back a bit further and thinking about some of the stories in the Old Testament In Genesis, we've got the story of Joseph, the one with the amazing Technicolor dream coat, as Andrew Lloyd Webber famously called it. And the backdrop for that was a really bad famine in the land that lasted seven years. And Joseph's brothers, who'd earlier sold him into slavery, had to go to Egypt to buy food. And there, without them realizing it, God had already been making things work together for good by rescuing Joseph and giving him such favour with Pharaoh that he put him in charge of all the food supplies as governor. As Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, what you intended for evil, God turned to good. So long before it was ever written, Romans 8.28 was already true because it's a characteristic of the God who gave us Romans 8.28, which is, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So Joseph's family moved to Egypt and all is well for several generations. But then in Exodus 1, it says that a new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to the throne. And he was worried that the Israelites might rise up against him. 
So he made them slaves and treated them really badly. It says that he worked them ruthlessly, made their lives bitter with harsh labour. And he told the midwives, every Hebrew boy that's born you must throw in the Nile. And that was the backdrop for the story of the Exodus, immortalised in the Prince of Egypt. God rescuing his people and leading them to the promised land. If they hadn't experienced that in Egypt, they may never have wanted rescuing. Even then, they ended up spending 40 years in the desert before they came into the land that God had promised. And many times during that, they were asking God, why is this happening? And then a bit later, Israel ends up in exile. They were deported to Babylon in a forced migration. And Solomon's temple, the first temple in Jerusalem, is destroyed. And you can feel the pain behind Psalm 137 verse 4 as they're asking the question, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? How can we be the people of God in these circumstances? Two of the great Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, both lived during this Babylonian exile. According to Jewish tradition, Jeremiah was the author of the book of Lamentations. He's known as the weeping prophet because of Jeremiah 9.1, where he says, If only my eyes were a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for my people. If you think about it, doesn't it really add to the significance of what we're reading in these stories and the things that people are saying and what they're feeling and what God is saying to them when we're aware of these contexts? Not only will it make us think twice before taking Bible verses out of those contexts and just copying and pasting them directly into our context, but it will also make what those verses are saying all the richer and more meaningful to us. And let me give you an example of that. You may remember that we talked a bit the other week about Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faithfulness to God. Well, Habakkuk lived just before that Babylonian invasion, when Israel was living under the cloud and the fear of the disaster that they knew was coming. And the book is all about Habakkuk arguing with God and wrestling with God when things are going wrong and bad things are happening and asking God why. Trying to understand where God was in all of this with lots of feeling and emotion in what he's saying. And the book of Habakkuk is only three chapters but the whole of the book is a conversation with God where Habakkuk is speaking on behalf of the people. He's asking what they're asking. He's feeling what they're feeling, which of course is what prophets should always do. And part of God's answer in Habakkuk 2 is look at how the proud trust in themselves. Wealth is treacherous, but the righteous shall live by faithfulness to God. And what God was saying to his people in their circumstances then is so relevant to what God is saying to us in our circumstances right now. When we understand what was going on at the time that that was written. 
We said the other week that living by faithfulness to God means living the way that a person would live and doing the things that a person would do if what we believe is true. Living faithfully to what we believe being true. And not doing the things that God was warning them against. Trusting in themselves and being deceived by money. And aren't they the things that God is warning us against right now as well at times like this? Inviting us to be people who will rise to the challenge of choosing to live by faithfulness to what we believe being true. Even in times and especially perhaps in times of danger and fear and anxiety when the pressure comes on. Because in a way, it's kind of easy to live faithfully when everything's fine, isn't it? But our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness comes out in what we default to and how we respond when things start to go wrong. Living by faithfulness means still doing the right things, still doing what's right before God, even when the chips are down so that we can look him in the eye without being ashamed. Faith is not what we believe about God. It's how we decide to live because of what we believe about God. What God says to Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faithfulness, is a timeless truth. It's a timeless challenge to us. And that's why it's repeated in the New Testament three times by two different writers because it was timelessly important to them as well. And then in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see what living by faithfulness to God looks like in practice because faith is a doing word, not a thinking word or a believing word. Faithfulness is what people of faith do. Faithfulness is what people who are right with God do. And Habakkuk chapter 3, which we're just going to look at, is now Habakkuk speaking. And he's speaking for the people. These are the very last verses in the book. And it's their response to God's challenge in chapter 2 to live by faithfulness when disaster is happening. And here's what they say. This is what that looks like for them and for us. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty and Tesco has no loo rolls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation, the sovereign Lord is my strength. That is living by faithfulness. That is living by faith and not by sight. So let's circle back to the verse that we started with. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. I wonder, can we say that These three remain in our lives right now, faith, 
hope and love. Love, faithfulness and expectancy. Are these the things that are the hallmarks of your life right now? Are these the things that are characterising your life right now? Are these the things that we're radiating to our kids and our friends and our family and our neighbours? Are these the things that you're known for right now? Are these the things that you will have been known for, that people will remember you for when all of this is over? Because these are the things that God is asking of us. Will they remain in our lives when the chips are down? Our faithfulness, hope and love, the things that we're going to default to? Or will they go out of the window? God is challenging us. How deep does our love for him and his kingdom go? Because it's only when the chips are down and things around us are going horribly wrong that we ever really find out the answer to that question and that God ever really finds out. So what a great opportunity for us to rise to the challenge and to show him that we are not just fair-weather friends of him and his church and his kingdom. Faith, hope and love are not just feelings. They're not just things that we believe. They're things that we do because of what we believe. They're all doing words. And Paul talks about them when he's writing to the Thessalonians as well. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So why don't we ask him? Why don't we invite him to give each of us the strength and the determination by the power of the Holy Spirit to be people whose lives are characterised by faith, hope and love? Let's be a community characterised by doing faith, hope and love. A community on which people will look back when this is all over and be able to say they were a people, they were a church who were known by their faithfulness to Jesus, their expectancy of Jesus and their love for Jesus.